so many things that she finds. It's not this brave West full of rugged individuals. Everyone's a cheater. Everyone's a liar. Everyone's a scoundrel. Cheney, his name, it's not even his real name. Nothing is what it actually seems. You think Rooster the Marshal, you find out he lives in the back of a Chinaman's grocery and sleeps on that bed and drinks whiskey and shoots at rats. There's this constant correction of what you think things are and what they actually are. And maybe that's where the danger is. Hello, this is the Book Society Podcast, and my guest today is Mark Schatzker. He is an award-winning writer based in Toronto. He's a radio columnist for the CBC. That's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, for all of you who don't know that. Everybody knows that. He has written for the Globe and Mail, which is a big deal of a Canadian newspaper. For those Americans who don't get the Globe and Mail, you should. I don't know if you can subscribe here, but if you can, do it. Also writes for Condé Nast Traveler, also writes for Bloomberg Pursuits, and he has three books. The first one is Steak, One Man's Search for the World's Tastiest Piece of Beef. The second book is The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor. And The End of Craving, his most recent book, which came out in the end of 2021, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well. In the end of next week's podcast with Mark, we are going to reveal where in Los Angeles you can eat the best piece of beef in the world. So... The book that Mark chose is True Grit by Charles Portis, which was written surprisingly to me in 1968. I assumed it was like a period piece when I first knew about it, but it was written in 1968. Charles Portis actually died in 2020. He was alive from 1933 to 2020. This book was originally published as a serial in the Saturday Evening Post. It was made into a film in 1969 starring John Wayne, a role for which he won an Oscar as Rooster Cockburn. Glenn Campbell and Kim Darby were also in it. Kim Darby was Maddie, obviously. In 1975, they made a sequel called Rooster Cockburn, also starring John Wayne. I haven't seen it, but I can't imagine it's very good. And in 2010, I think everybody who knows anything about anything knows that the Coen brothers remade this film in 2010. And it starred Jeff Bridges, Matt Damon, Haley Steinfeld in... I think what was her first really major role, and she was amazing as Maddie and Josh Brolin. That film, the 2010 film, interestingly, was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, but did not win any of them. What are the chances on that? So this was a great book to pick. I think I read it when I was a kid, but it was so fun to reread it. It's such a great book. But why did you pick True Grit? For the very simple reason that I loved it. I love so much about the book. I've read it several times, and every time I read it, I find something new to enjoy. And I think it's kind of an interesting book because it seems like a simple adventure on the surface. And then the more you dwell on it and think about it, the more it's actually, I think, a very interesting book and one that's interesting to reflect on. And not that I'm an awfully literary type, but this is a book that's dear to my heart. And it's also just so well-written. As a writer, it's one of those books where you just take your hat off and salute a writer who's done such a superb job using words to make us feel, which is the goal of writing. My first reaction when I read this book was, when I think of the Old West and I think of cowboys, I think of John Wayne. I think of these plain spoken, silent types and the way that they speak in this book, the way that Pontus writes them is so eloquent. Do you think that they really talked like that? Which do you think is more accurate? It's an interesting question. I think this book had a lot of influence on the Coen brothers. That movie they had recently, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is a bunch of sort of short films. And a lot of the characters speak as though they have a dictionary, like they downloaded a 19th century dictionary in their head. And you wonder, did they really speak this way? I suspect some educated people spoke that way. I think what's so funny about this book or so interesting is that typically the cowboy is a man of few words, walks softly and carries a big stick. 
And the hero in this book who plays the role of the cowboy hero who walks into a lawless land and essentially makes it bend to her will is a young, homely looking, verbose kind of teen who speaks like she's got that dictionary in her head. And it is so contrary to our image of the cowboy. And yet it's such a natural story, even though it doesn't fit any of what we would think of. People would say it's like, oh, that must be subversive. You have a female hero and a female narrator, but it just reads and works so beautifully. Yeah, it's so believable when you read it, but to tell the story doesn't make any sense because she really is the Western hero who goes in and imposes law and order. And by sheer force of will, she just keeps going. Like She's like that pony that she rides, that ugly pony that nobody wants, which is also, of all the animals in the book, is the hero. I thought about that role in film and how you would play Maddie. And it's really a lot like the role of Juliet, where Juliet has maybe some of the most depth of feeling of any Shakespeare character, but she has to be 14. She doesn't make any sense unless she's 14. Maddie is sort of the same way that she's just so deep and so smart and you have to have such a deep understanding of her for her to make any sense. But she's also a kid. Even in her monologue, she comes through as a kid. And one of the things that she has, I guess, sort of the gift of youth is that she describes things as they are and she doesn't layer on too much. And there's a certain honesty with how she sees the world. The first time she meets Labeef, she realizes that she basically wouldn't have told him so much had it not been for the fact that he was so handsome. That's the kind of thing you realize as you grow up. All those little fine points, some of her turns of phrase are just hilarious as well. Yeah, she's a really compelling character just from the first page. These old Western men really come to, I don't know if fear is the right word, but they really come to respect her and treat her as an equal. They accept her and then they defend her presence, essentially. When they take over that little hovel where those two criminals are holed up waiting for Lucky Ned Pepper's gang to return, they basically say, like, what's she doing here? Like, this is so odd. These two lawmen come to get Ned Pepper and his gang have this teenage girl with them. And they're like, what's going on? And they just don't even bother to explain it. It's like, she's here. Yep. She's on the horse. She's one of us. That's amazing. Do you have a favorite character in this book? And has it changed over time? Because I know you've read it a few times, right? Yeah, I would have to say, I think you start out liking Brewster just because he's this old character, this marshal who takes down outlaws. But I think it's Maddie. It's her sheer force of will. It's such a lesson in life. And the things that she says are so funny. I think also what I like so much about this book, and maybe one of the reasons it resonates with me, is the way it depicts food. And that's just one of the ways it depicts a lot of the details the era. And what I really respect about Portis as a writer is you can tell that he did so much research for this book. These are tiny details. Maybe you might not notice on first glance, but for example, when Tom Chaney was first hired by Maddie's dad, Maddie says how they gave him this little shack to live in. And she said it had a good roof. We take roofs for granted these days, but back then having a roof that didn't leak, you know, it was much harder to make roofs back then. We didn't have shingles and all the things that we have now. It was really interesting when she described eating the dinner at the boarding house. It was chicken and dumplings. And she talked about how it was all dumplings and no chicken, which is a detail that we wouldn't even think of because chicken is much, 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 much cheaper now than it used to be. And that would have been one of the things, you know, for whatever she paid 25 cents, you get your room and your board. But it really wasn't a very good meal. And she's talking about how all the guests are kind of rooting through their dinner trying to find a chicken. And then she talks also about, I guess there was a wild turkey that they had in that hovel and how she tried to scald it and pluck it. Now, I've actually done things like kill chickens and tried to pluck them. And she talks about how he was using his big Bowie knife to butcher it and he intentionally did it badly. These are just such interesting details. And then Labeef wanted to roast it. And Rooster said it's too lean to roast. It'll come out dry and tough. 
This is knowledge about poultry that doesn't exist anymore because all our chickens grow so quickly and they all have enough fat that that would never be an issue. But if anyone's ever tried to roast like a wild turkey or raised heirloom chickens, there's a depth of food knowledge there that is so effortless. And I think many readers might not notice because I have this sort of obsessive relationship with these kind of details. I was so impressed by it. So much of the detail in this, it's like incredible wallpaper that you don't notice it. And then if you actually look at it, you're almost mesmerized by it. That leads into my next question, which was, what makes a book a classic? And I think to answer my own question before I let you answer it, I think this is one of the things is that insane amount of detail. It has such a huge effect on the overall impression, even if you don't study it in depth. Back to my own question. What do you think makes a book a classic? I think it's really just the raw power of the story. I don't know if you can define it or explain it. You just feel it. One of the other things I find so interesting about this story It's kind of got this subversive quality in that all the institutions and all the characters are flawed in some way, that Maddie's father was a dreamer and he was always up to something and by her own admission did things that weren't awfully smart. We see that the law, that Rooster, as much as we love him, when he's put on the stand in that trial, we can see that he's not completely telling the whole truth. The guy she bought the ponies from, that he'd come to Arkansas and kind of been sold a dream. He couldn't stand Arkansas. He wanted to go back to Tennessee everybody's imperfect. Every institution is imperfect. There's often a lot of glorification going on in Westerns, whether it's the law or this or that. And this is just a really very subtle and interesting portrait of the way things actually were and are. Because usually the West is about getting away from the flaws of society, that flawed society that is associated with Europe, the old world or the East. But here, this is very much not about mountains and desert and cactuses and being under the big sky. It's very much about human society and all of its flaws. I found that super interesting. The thing that I really wonder with this book is, is this how the West was? Or is this just a really plausible version of how the West probably could have been? I don't know if there's an answer to that. But this seems like the most realistic Western book I've ever read. I agree. It seemed real to me insofar as she was talking about things like people were in on bad deals, like all these ponies that were bought to breed, but it turned out they were all geldings. And why were they geldings? She said, well, they had their own cowboy reasons for that, which is to say no one knows why, but it was a bad deal. She got this much money for her hay in Little Rock, and she would have got less if she sold it at that place. She described what a hanging was like and what people said before the hanging. And you have the sense that you visited a different era But there isn't the sense that you actually want to step into that era and live there. It was eye-opening and it teaches you a lesson, but it certainly doesn't glorify it. You mentioned that we meet Rooster Cockburn, one of our protagonists, as he is straight up lying to a judge about a murder that he committed. (laughs) And you have the sense that he was probably morally in the right, that the guys he killed were probably bad guys. A good lawyer in today's day and age would take him to task on that sort of thing. So one of the things I did a little research, he was in front of Judge, I think in the book they call him Isaiah, but Judge Isaac Parker was a real character in the Western Arkansas court. He lived from 1838 to 1896, and he was known as the hanging judge. He sentenced 160 people to death. What people think about him was that he was a Union soldier, and then he got posted out there in Arkansas where most of the people who he was seeing were Confederates, that he was sentencing these people to death largely as a little bit of retribution, because these were his old war enemies. But he eventually ended up getting elected to Congress. They dedicated a plaque to him in 2019. So he is still remembered as a hero of that area. But he was the judge who issued the warrant for Tom Cheney, and he was the judge to whom Rooster Cockburn was lying. I just assumed this was all made up, but that little detail really made me think, 
how much of this other stuff was real. Maybe this was a story that his grandmother told him. Who knows where he picked them up, the things about the turkey being lean. Maybe he learned that from his grandmother. Maybe he read an old cooking volume. You know, you wish he were still alive so you could ask how he put this together. Because one of the things that was interesting about fiction back then is I think it performed the role that nonfiction does today. Now, not necessarily in a Western, but some of the ways like high society might be portrayed fictionally. Now we would have like a tell-all book, but back then people just made stuff up. But it wasn't just as easy as sitting there and making stuff up. They did careful research. As someone who writes nonfiction, I looked at this and I thought, there's an awful lot of research that went into this book. It's so detailed and the world is so real. One of the other books we read a few weeks ago was The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoet, which is, you know, takes place in feudal Japan. Every detail is there, how something smells. And David Mitchell did a bunch of interviews about writing the book. And he said that he couldn't write more than one sentence at a time, because every time he would sit down to write something, he would say, okay, so what would they have shaved with? What would he be holding in his hand? And what would it feel like? And he just would have to dive right back into research. I don't get that sense from Portis. I get the sense that he really understood this world on a visceral level. Maybe that's just because he's a brilliant researcher. I just got the sense that he was writing. It seems like a dispatch from the time. You're right. We don't know. I wonder about those details, like about the roof and the turkey. But yeah, we don't know. It's so interesting. And some of the turns of phrase, there was that time they're waiting for Ned Pepper to come back to where they're going to ambush him. So Maddie and Rooster have this long talk and Rooster's talking about how he bought a restaurant with a woman that he was married to. And then I guess they got divorced. And she said, so what happened with the restaurant? And he basically said he couldn't run it. I was like a man fighting bees. And it's just such an incredible metaphor for someone who's really out of his league running a restaurant. There were so many others when she talks about Labeef and how he shows up at the rooming house in what she calls his fancy rig, his belt and his spurs and his big guns. And then when they're finally done, they have their unpleasant conversation finished as she's his clanking away in all his Texas trappings. I don't know why these things stick out to me. There was also the salesman that would have been at the rooming house when her father was there when he was murdered. And she said, you know, they didn't stick around as witnesses. She said they scattered like poultry. It's like this era and this land is in his blood, the way he can put these turns of phrases together. So one of the literary things that I noticed in this reading of the book was Rooster, right in the middle of the novel, this is almost right dead center, is when they're going to sleep for their first night out in the country. We first met Rooster in this weird boarding house where he was in the back of like a Chinaman's shop or something like that. She describes his bed as not having enough slats, so it sags in the middle. And so he's sleeping on this squalid bed. And that image was just so clear that I remembered it. But when we're out on the range, he has the most comfortable bed out of all of them. He has some mat that he sleeps on. And then he puts a rope around his bed to ward off the snakes. And this is the first time we hear of the snakes. The next time we encounter the snakes is when Maddie's in the pit where she thinks she's going to die. And that little detail that was like red meat for literary people taking this book apart. It harkened back to the beginning. It said so much about Rooster's character, and it really foretold the end. That was actually the moment where I was like, wow, that's brilliant. But that was the first time when I read this that I realized, oh, this is a work of literature. This is intentionally here to stimulate that bone. And it's not just a description of a thing that happened. One of the things I thought about, there's that early ambush when they find that secret hideout. And it's often an element in movies I remember I read a book about screenplay writing and there's this classic, you know, the hero of a thousand faces stuff. And they talk about how the hero gets into what's called the innermost sanctum. So that would be like in Return of the Jedi when Luke is there with the Emperor and Darth Vader. You've penetrated the enemy's lair. And it's interesting because they get to that pretty early, right? That's not the 
climax of the book. So I thought that was kind of interesting how he did that early, this penetrating the enemy's hovel and then setting up this ambush. But then she falls into the pit. And that was really entering like the belly of the beast. And it was accidental. It wasn't the hero making her way there. She fell into it. It's like he's playing with us and playing with literary techniques. That's what I get. I suppose, I mean, I don't really think of myself as literary minded in terms of analyzing books that way. But I did think about that as far as the hero's journey and how he played with it and made it seem very fresh and original. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't think of that. So in this novel, there aren't really any antagonists because other than Maddie and Tom Chaney, nobody really has a dog in the fight other than that they're being paid, right? Tom Chaney isn't really the antagonist. He drives almost no action other than getting Maddie started on this quest. But really the antagonist is the land and the West and the untamed nature of the Wild West. And these players are just acting out this silly drama on this land. But the real enemy is Oklahoma. What do you think? If you want to think of things in terms of symbolism, the interesting thing when she fell into the pit and there was the skeleton, she tore away the clothing and beneath the clothing was this pit of vipers. And the only thing that had me think of was that so many things that are depicted in the book are not what they seem. There's the surface. Then she discovers as this adolescent that the surface isn't how things really are. And it's what's beneath the surface that is actually dangerous and can sting you. And it's literally that way with the ball of snakes inside that skeleton. So many things that she finds, it's not this brave West full of rugged individuals. Everyone's a cheater. Everyone's a liar. Everyone's a scoundrel. Cheney, his name, it's not even his real name. Nothing is what it actually seems. You think Rooster, the marshal, you find out he lives in the back of a Chinaman's grocery and sleeps on that bed and drinks whiskey and shoots at rats. There's this constant correction of what you think things are and what they actually are. And maybe that's where the danger is. That's really interesting. Yeah, because she originally thinks that that skeleton is going to save her and it ends up being what almost kills her. So I want to ask you about another mystery. You are not a doctor, but I'm going to ask you a medical question. Sure. And here it is. So let's say that I were a farmer in Italy at the early part of the 20th century. And I came to you, Dr. Shasker, and I said, Dr. Shasker, I am having delusions I'm having diarrhea. I've got the scaly sores on my skin where they touch the sun. I don't know what's going on with me, but I feel terrible. And you might think that I'm starving, but I eat so much of this amazing bread that I get. I go to bed with a full belly every night. Mark Schatzker is going to diagnose the illness that I've just described. Also, we're going to talk about his books, which will make his obsession with the poultry of true grit make complete and total sense. Thank you so much for listening. The Book Society Podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor. You can reach us at Book Society Pod on Instagram, also BookSocietyPod at gmail.com if you want to send a direct email. Santiago Ramones is the co-producer and also definitely edits the show. He has his own podcast called Bit Depth. It's really good. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. Let's say that I were a farmer in Italy. I'm not going to do an accent.
in an Italian accent. Just imagine it. 